Well, our sermon this morning comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 4, and we'll begin in verse 10 this morning. I invite you to turn there. You'll find that on page 982 in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, we love for that Bible in the Pew Rack there to be our gift to you. And so please feel free to take a copy of God's Word and find great delight in it as God, I trust, will reveal Himself to you through it. And so on page 982, we'll find our text this morning. Uh, Before we begin, I do want to let you know that next Sunday is going to be a a special Sunday for us as we have friends who are serving our God in the nation of Liberia who will be here visiting with us and sharing with us the work that they are doing as God continues to expand His kingdom and spread the fame of King Jesus in that West African country, of course, which has been in the news um, rather frequently with uh, the Ebola outbreaks that are happening in Liberia. They're going to be here because we as a church have been praying um, about joining into a partnership with them and entering into this work that's taking place in this nation and how we could spread uh, the gospel to that faraway land. I look forward to uh, being able to hear from them, and I trust that you will as well. Um, So hopefully you found your way to Philippians chapter 4. And we will begin in verse 10. Hear now the word of God. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Father, we love You and we thank You that we can come now to hear from You through Your Word. We thank You, Father, for preserving it for us, that that we might gather here on this day and set ourselves under it, that we might submit to it, and in submitting to it, we might submit to You. And we trust You have much to teach us, Father. And that we ask that you would do so through the preaching of your word and the intercession of the Holy Spirit. We believe this book that lays in our laps is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. It's able to pierce our hearts, Father. It's able to do a mighty work. It is able to sanctify us. For our Lord even prayed, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And so we echo the prayer that Jesus offered on the eve of his crucifixion today. Sanctify us, we pray, in truth. Your word is truth. For we ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, I don't know if you have ever had the privilege of reading the book, uh, The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexander Dumas. It is a thick book, um, but it is well worth your read. Perhaps you've seen the movie. Um, but the book is extraordinary. It's a story of a man named Edmond Dantes and his, um, his adventures, if you will. There's a part in the book when uh, Edmund is thrown into uh, prison, the Chateau d'If, and there uh, he is thrown in prison for crimes against uh, the government, against Napoleon, and he encounters a fellow prisoner there by the name of Abbe Faria. Now, Abbe Faria is a brilliant man and has learned in many different disciplines, and over the years, he begins to teach Edmund Dantes all that he knows. And so he teaches them, him logic and history and chemistry and philosophy. He would, he would impart to Edmund all that he had learned over his years, and yet he withheld one truth. He had one secret. And Abbe Faria said the secret that he had was contained in the cross that hung around his neck. 
He would not tell Edmund, no matter how much he pleaded with him, what the secret was until Abbe Freya got to a, an age where he realized that he is too old to escape the Chateau d'If. And so he took off that cross from around his neck and he turned it over in his hand and he opened it for there was a little compartment in its underside. And out of that cross he took a map, a treasure map, to all the treasures of the island of Monte Cristo. And jewels and diamonds and gold beyond belief. And he handed it to his dear friend Edmond Dantes and he said to him, You are going to be a very wealthy man, Edmond Dantes. Well, you can kind of relate to that story, can't you? Not that you've experienced, but, but you've fantasized about experiencing it, haven't you? Coming into a great source of wealth, right? Whenever you see one of these uh, individuals standing on television who just won the, the latest lottery, we kind of imagine maybe what it would be like if that were you or if that were I. Or, or maybe, well, we're Baptists, so maybe we don't fantasize about winning the lottery, but maybe like a, a distant relative who we never met died and left us all their fortune. Something more holy like that, right? And so we, we, we fantasize about what would that be like? And even we did this as children, and my children do it, and I'm sure countless children have as they explore the great outdoors, wondering what would it be like to stumble upon some great and hidden treasure, a, a treasure to be discovered? Well, we come to a treasure today. It is in many ways a hidden treasure. It is the treasure of Christian contentment. A great brother of ours named Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a wonderful book, The Rare Jewel, he entitled it, of Christian Contentment. It is a jewel. For Paul writes here in verse 11, not that I am speaking, uh, not, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I would like to suggest to you today that Christian contentment is indeed a, a great treasure. In fact, it is greater than all the treasure of Monte Cristo. And if you give it a moment's thought, I think you would agree that you would rather have contentment than wealth. If you have that wealth with no peace. I mean, what does wealth offer you if it does not offer peace, if it does not offer contentment? The great writer of the Proverbs understood this, for he said in chapter 17, Better is a dry morsel with quiet that a house full of feasting was strife. I think we would all perhaps agree with this. This is why Paul, when he writing to his uh, beloved son in the faith, Timothy, would write in 1 Timothy chapter 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. That's right. It's great gain. It is a treasure. And yet it is, in many ways, a hidden treasure. It is a elusive treasure, a treasure that most of us don't have, that many in our land find contentment to be something difficult to, to find, difficult to achieve, whether we're single or married, rich or poor, young or old. Most humans, I believe, struggle in this pursuit of contentment. I have read that there was once an air, airline pilot flying over the Tennessee mountains, and he pointed out the, a lake down in the mountains to his co-pilot, and he said, you see that lake down there? It says, every day I used to, as a boy, go out on a rowboat and I used to fish there in that lake and I would see the planes fly over and every plane flew over. I looked up and said, one day I wish I could fly that plane. And then he said, but now whenever I fly over that lake, I look down on that lake and say, I wish I was back in a rowboat fishing. <laughs> and that's, is that not true for us in many ways? A universal problem. We struggle with contentment in our finances. Our jobs, the weather, our children, our family. Some people bring their discontentment even to church service. 
They are uh, discontent with the songs that are sung or even the length of the sermon, believe it or not. Where yeah. discontent, I think, in, is seen in our, our high um, um, consumer debt. Right? America, land of debt, proving that, that we, we want, we seek after that which we cannot afford. I think it's also seen in the high divorce rate, is it not? That I'm not content with the marriage that I have, so I will look for another. It has been said that two teardrops were once floating down the river of life. One teardrop said to the other, who are you? In which it answered, I am the teardrop from a girl who loved a man and lost him. Who are you? The other teardrop replied, I'm the teardrop from the girl who got him. (laughs) No matter where we are, the grass seems to always be greener. I read one study in preparation for this message. A newspaper in London did a study on contentment in Western civilizations and found out from the time one turns 13 all the way to the age of 40, contentment and happiness go downhill. And at 13, perhaps some of you are coming up on that age, is the age of greatest contentment. It begins to rebound a little bit in your senior years, and your greatest chance of being content as an older American is the age 74. Um, Contentment seems to be out of reach, a universal problem. It is something that many of us struggle with, and yet it's not what we always struggle with. In fact, there was a time in which humanity was content. We see it in Genesis chapter 2. This beautiful picture of man walking with God and and working for God and in love with God, totally content in the land in which God has given him, the relationship he has with God, the work that he has, his wife. This is the image of what man is created to be like with no higher ambition than to be with the Lord and to love him. And it is a beautiful and glorious picture. And unfortunately, it is terribly fleeting. For all we have to do is read the next chapter as we come to chapter 3. And as man and woman, Adam and Eve, listen to the devil's lies, the serpent's advertisement, you will, before the sin occurs, we see discontentment growing in their heart, discontentment with the boundaries upon which God has placed upon them. And that discontentment gives rise to their rebellion. What theologians have called the fall. It's really about being discontent with God and his blessings. And once man has rebelled against him, he became something totally different as we read on in the Bible. The contentment of Genesis 2 is gone. Peace became enmity. Dependence was exchanged for independence. Submission was discarded for rebellion, leaving man lost, restless, and discontent. Perhaps you're here this morning you're not a Christian. We're very thankful that you could be here with us today, and we hope you feel welcome and loved here. You're welcome to come anytime. But what do you think about this idea of discontentment? Why is it, it seems to me that that of all of this world, all of what I would call creation, that, that humans alone are the ones who struggle with it. Always wanting more, never seeming to have arrived, never seeming to have enough. Is it perhaps because we are not what we are supposed to be? That we are not where we are supposed to be or with whom we are supposed to be, namely our Creator, who has revealed Himself to be Jesus Christ. This is a contentment that is elusive, but the glorious thing is for us, and as I suggest to you this morning, based from our text, is that it is something that we can recover in Christ. Contentment, which is elusive, is not unreachable. 
And so John the Baptist would say to the repentant soldiers, be content with your wages. Or, or to Timothy, Paul would warn him of the greedy false teachers saying, if we have food and clothing, we shall be content. Or uh, uh, Hebrews echoed that warning that Paul gave saying in Hebrews 13, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's interesting to me as I, I review those verses and the Bible speaks about contentment, how many of them have to do with money, the, the context of money. And I think often discontentment arises in these uh, financial issues. A lack of money kind of puts us under pressure, doesn't it? And these hairline uh, cracks in our character that may be invisible under more uh, pleasant circumstances become revealed under the pressure of uh, this lack that we have and, and income's anxiety, which we considered a number of weeks ago, and anxiety asked the question, will you, there be enough to meet your needs? In which it always answers, no, there will not be enough. And its brother, discontentment, comes and says, will there be enough to make you happy? Will there be enough to meet your desires? Discontentment's answer is always the same, no. Not enough, not yet. One more thing, just that next thing. Of course, this discontentment not only comes to us when we are in need, but it also comes to us when we are abound, when we have more than we need, which is probably the description of most of us. We have more than we need, but unfortunately not all that we want. Somehow what, what, we, what we need is not enough. We, it's not good enough. It's not new enough. And somehow we have this restlessness in us until we have the latest gadget or most luxurious car or more spacious home as we wrestle with the question, how much is enough? I don't know if you've ever tried to answer that question. It seems like the answer is always the same for me. I don't know how much is enough, but I know I'm not there yet. You see, I hope that the treasure that contentment is, the, the gain that it brings, that's so many look for it, yet few find it. But Paul found it. Here he is saying, I found it. I've discovered the treasure. I know, he says, in any and every circumstance, I know what it means to be content. And here he is in this text before us. He leaves us a treasure map. And so let's go hunting for treasure today. Let's go looking for Christian contentment. And when we do, we shall find from this passage that contentment, one, is learned. And number two, that contentment is independent of circumstances. And number three, that contentment requires God's strength. It requires God's help. And so we're going to just work our way through these four verses, verse by verse. But before we do so, we've considered discontentment. Let's just for a moment consider what it means to be content. I mentioned our Puritan brother, Jeremiah Burroughs, in his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It's a small book. I highly recommend it to you. He defined Christian contentment this way. I believe it will be on the screen here. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. There's a beautiful definition and and much there that we can learn from it, but I just identified a, a handful of terms. You see that contentment is inward. That is, it's not this outward quietness, but it's something that happens on us on the inside. It it is, God's not, in other words, asking us to, to be actors. He wants us to become transformed. It is this quiet spirit, Burroughs says, as opposed to murmuring and complaining, as opposed to being unsettled and unstable. He says it freely submits 
to our king. I think ultimately what contentment is, is it is an issue of submission to our God. It is an issue of, of yielding to him and saying, God, I will be, uh, I will receive what you have called for me to receive. Another theologian named Sinclair Ferguson writes of contentment this way. Contentment is the direct fruit of having no higher ambition than to belong to the Lord and be at his disposal. He's saying, my ambition is for the Lord to have his way with me. It reminds me of Mary, doesn't it? Remember Mary when the angel Gabriel laid out God's plan for her and she responded, behold, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to your word. I submit, she said. I yield, she said. This is contentment, but it is not natural. It is learned, as we see firstly, contentment is learned. Paul writes in verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Just to put us in our place in the letter, we come coming now to the end of Paul's letter to the Philippian church, and he gets to this point. He started earlier in chapter 1, but now he's ending, and he wants to thank them for the financial gift that they have sent him while he is in prison. And so in verse 10, he says, I rejoice that you revived your concern for me. In verse 14, he says, it's good that you have shared my trouble. And in verse 18, he says, the gift that you've given is enough. I don't need any more. And it's in that context that we see that Paul here in verse 10 rejoices in the generosity of their gift. I rejoice greatly, he said, now that now at length you have revived your concern for me. He would have done this because as we've already established in our study of Philippians, that Paul's in prison, perhaps going on now year four in his unjust incarceration. And Paul there as a prisoner is totally reliant upon friends and family to meet his needs. He would not be clothed um, from the prison. He would not receive food from the prison except for an occasional very meager fare just to barely keep him alive. And so if he was to eat and to be clothed and have all his other needs met, he would be reliant upon those who would actually give to them, that, that support him. And so he says here that it was, uh, in verse 14 that it was kind of you to share my trouble. And he says, thank you for helping me in this situation, that my trouble's been lightened because you're gift. But you notice in verse 10 that his joy is not simply because he's now more comfortable in his prison. Rather, his joy is found in their revived love for him. Note that verse again. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Paul, in other words, found delight in their love for him, in their concern for him. In fact, he expresses this delight in beautiful language. That word revive is actually the Greek word for blossom. And he says that your concern has blossomed again. It's almost like the picture of these springtime bulbs that have gone dormant over the winter. And once it begins to warm, they begin to bloom again. Well, when Epaphroditus, the Philippian emissary, walks into that cell in Rome, it was for Paul as if springtime had come, as if the flowers were bursting in his prison. And he rejoiced. In fact, not only rejoiced, but verse 10 tells us he did so greatly. That is, everyone heard of Paul's joy. The guard chained to his wrist 18 inches away and everyone he happened to encounter would learn of the great joy that Paul had received. In fact, you could imagine what it must have been like imprisoned, isolated, chained to a guard now going on years, having no privacy, left wondering this great apostle of the condition of the churches in which he has planted. And one day in walks Epaphroditus, maybe on a Tuesday afternoon, and he comes bringing with him the apostles joy 
I come to not only give a gift to you, but to let you know of our love for you. We love you, Paul. And Paul rejoices in that love. In fact, evidently, it's been some time since he's heard from them. You notice verse 10, it says that it's been at length, right, that they've helped him. We're not sure why they stopped helping Paul. We do know from 2 Corinthians 8 that the Philippian church was enduring this crushing poverty. And we'll consider that, God willing, next week, their situation. But now their gift comes as a testimony for their love for Paul, their revived concern. And so Paul writes this letter largely to thank them. But interestingly, in thanking them, he wants to do so, he wants to qualify it. In fact, Paul kind of puts two footnotes or two qualifications on his, his thanks. Um, verse, if we read on to verse 10, we see the first one. He says, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. It almost seems like Paul doesn't want them to misunderstand him. When he says, I rejoice greatly in the gift you've given me, but please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying it's about time. Right? I'm not saying, where have you been all these years? Finally, you show up. No, he goes on and says, I want you to understand, I know I was never far from your mind. I know you had no opportunity to help me. And so please do not hear me that I am scolding you in my thanks. And then he goes on to offer another qualification to his thanks. It's almost as if he doesn't want them to, to think that his excitement over their gift is his kind of sneaky way of getting more from them. Right? Look in verse 11. He said, goes on and says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. Right, you ever, you ever get, uh, give to a nonprofit, right? You send them a check and they send you a very nice thank you, right? And the thank you is about one quarter thank you and about three quarters why they need more money, right? This is all the, this is all of our needs and they say, we very much help, thank you for our gift, but we also have all these additional needs. Well, Paul says here, I don't have any additional need. Isn't that amazing? Verse 11. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. He, he doesn't list them at all. So Paul sends back this letter to the Philippian church and there is like no pre-stamped return envelope with it, right? I, I don't have any other needs, he says. So please don't think I am soliciting more. Thanks for your gift, but please don't misunderstand me, I'm not in need, which is an extraordinary statement because he's in prison. I mean, he's in, in our mind, great need. So how is it that he can say, I'm not in need? Well, read on in verse 11. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. In fact, you see again in verse 12. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned, there's that word again, the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He has learned contentment. He says, verse 11, and again in verse 12, which I think is a wonderful truth, that contentment is something that is learned. Paul says, I've learned this. I find this comforting because it wasn't natural for Paul. Paul didn't, wasn't naturally a, a content man. He had to grow in this way. Contentment is not this attachment that comes with salvation. It's not a single dose vaccine that we take that makes us immune to whining and complaining. Contentment is something that is honed by practice. It grows over time. Therefore, uh, you will not leave here probably more content. This sermon is not designed to make you content. It is designed to show you where you can find it. It is designed to show you the work that you need to do in order to achieve it. You get it by living for it, by laboring for it, by fighting for it. I appreciate what Charles Spurgeon did uh, did with this text when he preached it centuries ago, saying, covetousness, discontent, and murmuring are as natural to man as thorns are to the soil. 
We need not sow thistles and brambles. They come up naturally enough. And we need not teach men to complain. They complain fast enough without any education. But the precious things of the earth must be cultivated. If we would have wheat, we must plow and sow. If we want flowers, there must be the garden and all the gardeners care. Now contentment, he says, is one of the flowers of heaven. And if we would have it, it must be cultivated. This is something that we must learn, cultivate, pursue. I think one way to learn about, about contentment, to learn how to have it, is to understand what gives rise to its opposite. What gives rise to discontentment? What are the, what are the symptoms? I think, in fact, I think discontentment is a symptom of a, of a far more, uh, dangerous or insidious disease. The reason we're, we're discontent is, is largely because we're ungrateful to God, isn't it? That we become so preoccupied with what we want and we don't have that we begin to suffocate our ability to be thankful for what he has given us. And we soon forget that we were once an orphan left to fend for ourselves. And now we've been adopted by God and we become heirs of the world, the Bible tells us. And we we forget that our sins have been forgiven and, and, and all those past and present and all those sins in the future have been washed away by the blood of Christ. We forget that we were blind and now we see and we forget that we were dead and now we are made alive in Christ. Rather, we become frustrated because our television isn't big enough. Our car's not fancy enough. And we say, yeah, yeah, thank you, Jesus, for all you've done, but what I really want is this. If you could just give me this, then I would be happy. And we begin to declare, God, I love the things that you give me more than I love you, money and cars and weather and food and job and health and family. And if you take them away from me or do not give them to me, I will murmur at you. I will complain and I will be filled with discontent and restlessness. It is a symptom of ingratitude. And even more than that, discontentment is a symptom of arrogance. It's, a, it's in some sense saying God's plan for your life is not as good as your plan for your life. And if you were in charge, things would go much better for you. And you are arrogantly saying, I know better than God. And this is what I do and we all do when we give ourselves over to discontentment. So please do not understand as this cute little respectable sin that it's okay to be a little discontent in your life. And you just pat it on the head and that's just who I am. It's my personality quirk. No, it's a, it's a sin against God. It's an ingratitude towards God. It will, it will destroy your ability to worship God, to live a life of worship and praise for Him. There are enemies with each other. In fact, the reason we worship and praise God is for what He has done and, and who He is. But, but discontentment says what He has done and who He is is not enough for me. And therefore, He is not worthy of our praise. I would suggest to you, therefore, as we learn contentment, it is something to repent of. And maybe, uh, maybe you could do that even now. I would welcome you just to kind of drown me out for the next couple of minutes. Perhaps some of you need to do a work with God and be honest with him and confess sin to him and ask him to forgive you and to give you a new desire to learn this contentment, to fight for it, to nurture it and labor for it. And we see contentment is learned. Paul says, I learned it not once, but twice. He goes on and says, contentment, secondly, is independent of circumstances. We see this in verse 11 as we see Paul say, for I have learned... In whatever situation, I am to be content. So whatever it is, I can be content. And then he goes on to explain what he means in verse 12. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to bound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And so he kind of really goes to two ends of the spectrum, doesn't he? He says, I, first of all, know how to be content when I have need, when I'm brought low, he says. Now, when we have need, for us, when we are brought low, that means maybe failure, 
That means we're, we're overlooked at work or we're still single, right? That means we've knocked on the door of our dreams and it remains shut and all we've done is bloody our knuckles and we wonder what's going on. That, that for us in, a, in our context is probably what it means to be brought low. For Paul to be brought low means to go homeless and to go hungry and to be beaten. In fact, he would say to the Corinthian church, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. He would go on and write elsewhere, to the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands, we have become and and are still like the scum of the world, the refuge of all things. And Paul says, even in the midst of that, I'm content. I'm content when I'm hungry and homeless, and I tend to be discontent when my home's not quite nice enough or the steak isn't cooked right. Paul says, I'm content in rags and beatings and labor. We grow discontent because our clothes are old. The driver in front of us is too slow and the job is not fulfilling. And I think if we take a good hard look at our brother, we will be a little red-faced with our murmuring and embarrassed with our discontentment because we get upset when our computer doesn't boot up fast enough for us. And he's nearing starvation, he says. I'm good. I don't have any need, he says. I have learned this secret. Our natural inclination, you know, is to complain, isn't it? If it's not going the way we want, it's a reflex that we have to to complain. We need to fight against this. In fact, I would suggest to you that God, in these circumstances, when he brings you low, he is shaping you. He is sending circumstances your way as God seeks to, to clarify your allegiance, as he seeks to clarify your devotion and your love for him. He will put you in difficult places to see where your love lies. You know this, don't you? Some of you have experienced this, what it's like to be brought low as God asks, when I take this away or when I offer this to you, will you still love me or will you murmur at me and grumble at me for you seek my hand and not my face? In fact, we see a beautiful picture of this in the book of Exodus. I'm going to turn there. You, you can if you like. It's Exodus chapter 17 is a picture of God's people who have been redeemed from their bondage by the blood of the Passover lamb and by the outstretched arm of God and his might. And he has redeemed them and, and he is bringing them to the promised land. And so they are on their way marching to the promised land after their great and mighty redemption from God. And we see a little event there in Exodus 17. It says, all the congregation, verse 1, excuse me, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted here for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff with which, with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Note verse 7. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah. 
because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Those two words that he uses there in verse 7, he called the place, first of all, Masa, which means testing. And we already see a couple places that they were testing God. He also calls it Meribah, which means nagging or quarreling. That they were nagging God. That they were quarreling with God and they, as they tested him. But what's interesting, that word masa, that, that word testing, God is actually going to use that later in a psalm. You see, not only were they testing God, but God was actually testing them. Psalm 81 verse 7 says, God speaking through the psalmist, I tested you at the waters of Meribah, at the waters of testing. In other words, when God brought them to this place, he did not bring them there by accident. This was a test that God had placed them in. This was a, a, uh, a time of need in which God had purposely put them there in order to determine their devotion to him. Do they love him? Do they trust him? Will they continue to follow him in times of need? Do you love me, God says to us frequently, if I take this away from you? Am I enough for you if I add this to your life? God tests us. He sculpts us that we might be made like Jesus. Paul says, I've learned the secret to be content in that. I know that God is in control. I trust in him. I can be content in need, knowing that it is God who is sovereign and is testing me. But Paul not only says that his contentment is in need, but he goes on to the other end of the spectrum back in Philippians 4 and said that he can be content in plenty. You saw that there in verse 12. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. This idea of plenty is when we get the job, isn't it? Or we get the raise or we get engaged or we get pregnant or we get what, what we're looking for. Paul's saying, I know how to be content when the car is new and the family's wonderful and the bank account is full and the job is fulfilling. I could be content in those situations, which kind of makes me scratch our head, my head, doesn't it? Uh, I, maybe it does for you, because it doesn't sound hard to be content when the car's new, right? Paul's saying, I have learned the secret of being content in abundance, in plenty. And we wonder, well, is that difficult? Well, I think if probably we spend a moment of thought, we will realize it is difficult. Many of us, in fact, probably all of us, by the world standards, live in abundance, don't we? We live in plenty. And yet we still can't say enough. I think abundance rarely leads to contentment. Uh, that, that, that if we're not content with what we have, I don't think we're going to be content with what we're trying to get. The next thing that we have in fact, Paul says you need to be learned to sat- be satisfied in circumstances, any and every circumstance, content with your lot in life. It was in 1889 and April 22nd that uh, Oklahoma opened its land to the, those who wanted to go westward. It was the Oklahoma land rush. There was two million acres there for the taking. And you could just run out there and you put your stake down and that is your land free of charge. So on April 22nd um, at noon... All of these settlers had lined up along the line waiting for the gun to fire to race off to find the land that they wanted to spend their lives in. Well, the gun fired and off they went. And they soon discovered that the best land had already been taken by those who had gone out the night before. We call them, of course, the Oklahoma Sooners, right? They went too soon. And that, that they were filled with this discontentment. Couldn't wait for, for them to uh, um, follow the rules and, and receive what they would receive. 
Something very similar happens in the Bible when God brings his people into the promised land. And there in the book of Joshua, he literally casts lots to decide where your tribe will live and where your family will live. It's from, from that practice that we get the word allotment. You hear the word lot in that, that they cast lots for them. And this is the, the boundaries of your life. The psalmist takes that idea in Psalm 16 and he says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. You see what he's saying? My life is pleasant because you are my portion. You are my cup. As he considers how God is dealing with him, I rejoice in the boundaries which you have drawn for me. I am content with that lot that you have given me. We need to learn to be content in whatever circumstances we are. We need to learn not to look at what's in our life and and then stand and yearn for that which is outside of it. For once we do, there goes contentment. Or look within our boundaries and see something we don't want there and want to get rid of it. And there goes contentment. We need to seek to be content with what God has done for us. One way to do so, as Jeremiah Burroughs would argue, is we need to cut down on our desires. He calls that the principle of subtraction. Stop wanting so much. Instead, seek after Christ. Long after Christ which is, I think, what Paul will tell us lastly. In fact, we, we need help in this. We need help to cut down on our desires. And Paul, in verse 12, says there's a secret to this. You see that? I have learned this secret, he says. And so we, we want to kind of lean in and listen to what he has to say. What is this secret that he tells us? And he goes on to give us perhaps one of the most abused verses in all of Scripture, Philippians 4 and verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And it's here that we see, thirdly, that contentment requires God's power. And I mentioned that verse 13 is abused, right? I can do all things through him who strengthens. Many of you have that memorized. And people take that and they apply that to everything in their life. I could pass the test for which I have not studied. Because I could do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I could get the job for I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I could leap a tall building in a single bound, right? Because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Some people I have heard have even put this verse on the ceiling of their home gym as they lie down to bench press 250 or whatever it is, knowing that they can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. In fact, this verse is sometimes abused. People are bullied with it in ministries. I know you don't want to teach the middle school Sunday school class and you never taught the Bible and you have no inclination. You really don't like middle schoolers. But Paul says you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. So what's your problem? Don't you believe God's word? You know, obey the word of God. And we abuse this verse over and over and over again. I would like to suggest to you that verse 13 of the book of Philippians in chapter 4 is not God's blank check, which he has signed, and you fill in the strength in which you need, the strength in which you require. It is the all things of verse 13 is limited by the context given to us in verse 12. Paul is in some sense saying, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, namely starve, right? Namely be homeless, Whatever my circumstances, rich or poor, preaching to crowds or locked in prison, I am content. How? Because I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Which tells us, doesn't it, that as we've already established, I think that contentment doesn't come from within us. It comes from outside of us. We need God's strength. We need him to give us his strength. Paul would write as much in 2 Corinthians in chapter 12. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ. Then I am content 
with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Strong. Not because he's strong, but because his Messiah, his Savior is strong. And for Christ's sake, I find strength. Whatever the difficulties I face, I find my strength in Christ to be content. Know then, Christian, it takes strength to be content. The weak are easily discontent. And you can imagine a hundred different scenarios. You're perhaps driving to a very important meeting tomorrow and you're late for that meeting and all of a sudden you hear the clunk in your car, right? The loud clunking noise. And you know what that noise is. It's called money, right? Fleeing from you, right? right? That's what that noise is. It will be take strength at that time to maintain your Christian contentment. You need God, to continue to trust in Him and to submit to Him. That strength comes from Him. God told us as much through the prophet Jeremiah saying, Blessed is the man whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green. And it's not anxious in the year of the drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. My question then for you is, how does a tree have green leaves in summer heat and bear fruit in the midst of the drought. It is not because the tree has this internal spring within it. It is because it is planted by the stream. It is planted by Christ. He is the source of our strength. For our Lord said even in John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. It's that connection to Christ. Therefore, to pursue contentment, it, there's no quick fix. There's, there's no, no shortcut. It comes by abiding in Christ, by spending time with Christ, by meditating on Christ's word and hiding in your heart and seeking to serve Christ and to become like Christ, which, of course, is Paul's ambition. As we've discovered in this book, he has said in chapter 3, that I might know him. Has he not? He's, he has said, forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which I have been called heavenward in Christ Jesus. I will run this race. I will fight this fight. I will press on towards Christ, which tells us that contentment is no sedative. It does not make you lazy and weak and unmotivated. Paul says, I may be content with where I am. I may be content with what I have, but I am not content with who I am. I want more of Christ. There are things worth longing for in this world. There are things worth striving for. There are things worth living for. A larger television, a fancier car, or even a more fulfilling job is probably not those things. It is Christ and Christ alone. Strive, Christian, to be with Christ and you will find him and 10,000 treasures that he brings you, one of them being Christian contentment. My question then for you is how are you doing? How are you doing? How's life? How's your heart? Are you restless? Anxious? Discontent? Relationally? Financially, in your job, Philippians four is is, is a whole. It's a challenging chapter. Rejoice always. Remember that. Be anxious for nothing. Remember that. Be content in all circumstances. Discontentment is is sneaky. I think. 
I, I, I very much appreciate this chapter. I've learned so much in studying it because it has exposed my heart. Right? Some sin you know you're committing. No one, no one lies by accident. Right? You don't hit somebody in the face by accident. Right? You know you when you do that. But sometimes these things sneak up on you. Right? And all of a sudden you realize, I'm, I'm, I've lost my contentment. I'm discontent. I'm anxious. And as God's word comes and it's a mirror for us and says, look deeply into it that you might see who you are and who Christ is, that we might see our hearts and help us. Christian, are you discontent? Does God need to continually feed you with good circumstances, new circumstances, lest you're going to murmur at him? Do you ever get to the end of your day and you just kind of look at that day and, and you say, that was a good day. What a good day that was. Or do you always find something that, that, that lacked it? It's something to complain about. I think if we become the people we're supposed to be, if we believe the gospel in which we say we believe, we will be deeply and strongly content people. Not because every day is good. Please don't misunderstand me. Every day is not good, but because we know Christ. And he gives us strength in us that we may say, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. And perhaps you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. Can you imagine such contentment? I mean, a contentment that is totally unchained from circumstances in life. A, a contentment that removes all of your restlessness, but none of your ambition. It's not found in the things of this world. Things in this world come and go. This world can offer you nice things. It takes them back. It is found only in Christ. It is a peace that Christ offers you. He offers you this not only because of who He is, but because of what He has done as He has come to this earth and lived a perfect life, a life in which you ought to live and I ought to live, and yet you and I have committed sin and rebelled against Him. And so Christ has come out of great love and mercy for us, and He would go to the cross after a perfect life and there die upon the cross, paying the penalty for my sin and for the sin of all who would give their life to Him. And there He would take the wrath of God upon Himself three days later, prove that He is who He says He is by being raised bodily from the dead. And he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be saved. Peace with God, eternity with God. He will give that to you through the work of Christ. This would be something I'd love to talk with you about perhaps after service or we could get together sometime this week and we can explore these truths together, the peace in which Christ offers us. Well, we must end. As we consider this wonderful and great truth, I was reminded of a story that perhaps you have heard. I think it was told by John Newton, the author of the, the wonderful hymn, Amazing Grace, a wonderful pastor in his day centuries ago. He told a story of a man who was on his way to receive a great inheritance, an abounding wealth. And on the way, his carriage broke, leaving him to have to walk the last two miles to receive his inheritance. The whole time he murmured, my carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. Even though he was about to receive abundance, about to receive plenty, about to receive an unimaginable inheritance. I don't know what situation you find yourself in today. Maybe your carriage is broken. I trust for some of you it is broken badly. And maybe the road you're having to walk now is hard. And maybe the weather is bad. 
But I will remind you today, Christian, that the road that you are on is a road that is taking you to your inheritance. And it is beyond your imagination. It is an inheritance that is just over the hill. It is an inheritance found in Christ. The great theologian J.C. Ryle once said, The presence and company of Christ will make amends for all we suffer here below. When we see as we have been seen and look back on the journey of life, we shall marvel that we made so much of our cross and thought so little of our crown. Let us take courage. We are not far from home. That home is found in Christ. Our home is found in Christ because of Christ. Because of the work of Christ. Namely, His death. In fact, we want to celebrate that work. We want to remind ourselves today, and we're going to do so through the Lord's Supper, rejoicing that we are on our way to our inheritance, that Christ has come and that Christ has died, that Christians, that those who trust in Him might be saved. And the Bible tells us that we need to celebrate this meal and remember Jesus and what He has done for us, and I invite you to do so today. If you're not a Christian, I mentioned we're happy that you're here and And uh, at this time, we're going to ask you not to participate in this meal. The reason we do so is not to be mean to you, but because the Scripture prohibits those who have not trusted in Christ from taking the bread and the cup. And so, if you will, just discreetly pass that by as it comes by uh, you, and, and we would appreciate that you doing that for us. For the rest of us who have bowed our knee to Christ and placed our faith in Him, we, as is our custom, as Scripture tells us, we want to give, our, give us all an opportunity to examine our own lives. We come here rejoicing in grace. We don't come here perfect people. We come being covered in the blood of Christ, and yet we don't come here casually. In fact, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, who therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. What's the solution? Let a person examine himself, he says, and then eat the bread and drink the cup. And so, Christian, I give you an opportunity to silently pray to our God that you might repent of any known sin in your life, that you might come to this meal uh, with a clear conscience. Let us pray together.